Well, um, as we draw to uh, a close uh, um, in our series in the Psalms, our short series in the Psalms in book one in the Psalms, and before we uh, begin our series in uh, 1 Peter over the course of this term starting next week, it's good to uh, draw this series to a close um, uh, by looking at Psalm 24 together this morning. And as the uh, uh, theme of this mini-series has been looking at what man is under God, man is blessed, noticed, and kept, as we looked at uh, Psalms 1 and 2, Psalm 8, and Psalm 23, that, that, that draw us to those conclusions about humankind. So today we finish by looking at the same question, what is man, or what is a human, but from a different angle, as we ask the question that Psalm 24 asks, which is, what is God? Or more exactly, who is God and where is God? And that is a question that has exercised the human race throughout the centuries, hasn't it? Where is God? Uh, Stephen Hawking's famous book, uh, The Grand Design, aims to answer this question. In his book, he claims that a fuller understanding of the laws of nature, like gravity and the like, it removes the need for us to postulate God's existence at all. So where is God, according to Hawking? Well, nowhere. Science increasingly fills all the gaps that God had been placed into when we couldn't explain those things until we learned more and more things about how the physical world works, and those gaps then became filled with science. And so God is therefore nowhere, or at least increasingly nowhere. <clears throat> now, Hawking was an amazing scientist. But many are not persuaded that he's achieved his aim of undermining God's existence at all. If there is a grand design, the very thing that he has entitled his book, the obvious question is then, well, who is the designer? Because ironically, the more the gaps in our knowledge have been filled, even with science, the more amazed we are at how well designed the world is. That is all but Hawkins' point. So, so the question still stands, who and where is the designer? <coughs> And how do I find him? A uh, few people are as scientifically minded as Stephen Hawking. But the rest of us still embark on a search for God. We want to search what is out there, what life is all about, to ask the question, who are we? That's what we've been looking at over the course of the summer. And people are more spiritually um, engaged in this generation than any generation since the war, seeking to answer these questions in all kinds of different areas in life. And that's very much what we, what we see. People are more interested in something other, something deeper than can be empirically tested or physically experienced and materially sensed. Something outside beyond us which makes sense of who we are. Something that makes sense of how we are designed and how I feel. We want to know how things work and why. Some people try to find it in themselves. Others like to go outside of themselves. Others go to, to, to practical places to try and find God. That's the question. If I were to look for God, says the human, is this the place, wherever that might be, that I find him? Now, Psalm 24 was written for those who are searching for God, those who want to seek after God. And the good news is that this Psalm 24 tells us both where God is and how we can get there to him. And the psalmist, King David, again, he shows us in three ways where God is and how to get there. And the first place to look, says the psalmist, is planet Earth. Verse 1, and this is our first point of three, the earth is the Lord's. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's, writes David, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. 
This is planet Earth, the global village, as we might call it today. Even in a post-pandemic world where we start to go on planes again to foreign parts, the one thing we notice as we're staring down at the ground from 32,000 feet is just how vast the world is. And all of it, says the psalmist, all of it belongs to one person, the Lord. It's been great this summer that a number of us have been able to finally uh, get away and go and visit the world or, or at least uh, other parts of the UK for holiday. And it's worth noting that every single place that we've all visited between us, even the unpronounceable names in Wales, for example, like they all belong to God. They were all places that God owns and inhabits and that he has mastery over. You were going to God's place on holiday. That's where you were going. And every last corner of those places belonged to the Lord. There's not a part of those places that is sort of fenced off and, and belongs to someone else. I don't mean to be glib or triting saying that. It's just true. And it's really helpful for us as we think on this, as obvious as this point might be, and as I begin to belabor it a little bit, especially for us as Christians, for those of us who would call ourselves Christians. But you see, this building, for example, Redeemer Church, or even Collington Parish Church of the Road, or the Episcopalian Church across the way, that they are not buildings in which God only is, and that is where you find him. Not at all. Or when you look out over the cityscapes of major cities, you see the spires of the churches, and you sort of think, oh, that's where God is. He's in those, he's in those spires. He's in those places. And it's surrounded by building developments and, and, and cinemas and office blocks. And that, those are the places where God isn't, but God is in all the, all the churches, surely. Well, that's just not true. God is everywhere. We've often said, haven't we, or, or, or sort of found ourselves thinking or heard it said inadvertently, oh, we're going to the Lord's house this morning to, to worship God. Well, well, that's not strictly true either, as, as if this is the only place where the Lord resides on a Sunday morning. He sort of turns up as we turn up. This is just bricks and mortar. It's not different to the bathroom shop next door. God is to be everywhere. Both places belong to God. It's not that this building isn't significant, can't be used significantly for God's work on earth, but, but everything belongs to God. All the buildings on this street, the school that you send your kids to, our very homes, every university, every shop, every dark alleyway, every bedroom, all of those things belong to God. In short, says the psalmist, you can't get away from him. No matter how much one might avoid a church building. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means the earth is the Lord's and absolutely everything in it, says King David. Now, why is this the case? Why is it the case that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it? Well, that's answered in verse 2. For he, says David, the Lord has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In short, the whole earth belongs to the Lord because he created it. He, he made all of it. He is the creator. It is his. He made it. He owns it. And he can do with it as he pleases. And verse 2 reminds us of the Genesis account, doesn't it, where God brought order out of chaos, put the waters in their place, created land and uh, for people to live on. Ironically, it's that very order, which is why scientists can make their experiments and find workable fixed patterns. That, that order in creation is good. It's completely under the Lord's authority. It's for us and all people to enjoy. Which brings us back to verse 1. Have you noticed? 
the, 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 the one thing that is highlighted and focused on. What is that? That the, the world, says David, belongs to the Lord and those who dwell therein. David wants us to think about those who are at the pinnacle of the created order, humanity. This is Psalm 8 again. There's a focus here on humankind that is made significant above all other created beings. Humanity is especially picked out here in verse 1. The giraffes aren't mentioned. Bees aren't mentioned. Dogs, no matter how lovable they are, they don't get a look in. Humanity does. People. People are highlighted by David as being a significant part of the creation under the Lord. The Lord is over everything. Specifically, says David, all people everywhere. Whenever you look at a group of people, in other words, the fundamental thing about every single one of them is that they belong to the Lord. They are his. So the earth is the Lord's, and humans on the earth are very especially the Lord's, but there is something other to spot in verse 1, which we might miss if we're not careful. Did you spot the, the, the very exclusive claim that has been made in this psalm right from the start? And notice that the earth and all its people don't just belong to a God or any God, any Lord. The earth doesn't belong to Lord Science or Lord Allah or Lord Vashtu or Lord insert personal identification marker here, a.k.a. myself. No, this earth belongs to the capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. God, the, the, the one true God, the, the, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of King David, the God who created the world and who reveals himself to his people in Egypt, if you remember, and who rescues them from the Egyptians, takes them through the Red Sea, who saves them to the promised land and who gave them his name. I am Yahweh. I am that I am, the, the, the great I am, the one in the earth who creates and saves. The one who finally and fully reveals himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he became a man and walked on the earth. The earth and all the people in it belong to that God and to no other. Some of you who are so inclined might remember the Brazilian football player, uh, Kaka. And at the end of every match, win or lose, he would famously take off his playing shirt and underneath was a vest which had emboldened across it the words, I belong to Jesus, if you remember. It's fascinating to see what the papers thought about it. It's great for him, many said. We, we were glad he finds solace in faith. That's a broad agreement. It's not for me. Good for him. Unlike that he thinks he belongs to Jesus. That's very sweet. But it turns out that that sentiment is, is for them. It turns out that that t-shirt, if you like, is a one-style-fits-all. Whether you want to wear it or not, we can be that specific. Are you belong to the Lord? So verses 1 and 2 are teaching us, if you like, the basic facts about humanity and reality. What is man? We are God's full stop. We are part of his creation. We cannot get away from the Lord God. No, no matter which building we're in, he rules over all of it. And whatever you or I have, it actually all belongs to him. We ourselves, along with everyone else, are totally his possession. Which makes sense then, doesn't it, of what happened on a mountainside after Jesus rose again from the dead a thousand years later. When the risen Lord Jesus turns to his stunned disciples and says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples of all 
nations. Maybe as we read verses 1 and 2, we thought those are quite simple, basic truths. Okay, thanks, Sam. Thanks for telling us that. But so many people are unaware of these truths and are living as if it isn't true. As if Lord God isn't Lord over the whole earth. And that is, as we will see, a very dangerous reality. They need to be told. They need to be told that there is a Lord God over them, regardless of whether they're like that or not, that they belong to someone else, that they don't belong to themselves. Along with everything else in creation, they need to accept that and start living as, that, as if that is true. And, and Jesus has commissioned his followers to go and do just that. Go and tell them. Go and tell them who the Lord God of the world is. And that is what we are as a church, a mission station, if you like, in this part of God's world. To carry this news to this part of the world, the news of the Lord Creator God, uh, to, to whom every single soul in this community belongs, uh, for whom very few are living in that reality. The accusation of some, even from um, different parts of the Christian community, to us planting is, isn't it supremely arrogant to start up a new church? What is arrogant is living in God's world as if Jesus wasn't Lord over it. And even more arrogant than that is knowing that that is what people need to be told and not telling them. That is what our focus is as we begin to reopen the church again, as we're able to meet up with people again in real life, in, in, in our homes, and in our workplaces, catching up with the opportunities that we've had sort of taken away from us as we want to share con constantly and, and consistently the news that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and that it is wonderful news, the whole world and all its people. You belong to a good God, including your neighbour, your, your colleague, your, your flatmate, your family, everyone. And when you talk to them, this really helps us in our evangelism, when you talk to them, remind yourself that they belong to Jesus and Jesus wants them to know that, to accept that, and to them enjoy being his personal possessions for eternity as his disciples. We've made some progress on the question as to where God is. We haven't quite answered it fully yet, but we've got the basics in place, haven't we? We find God everywhere in the earth. Everything shouts his name in creation. Everything belongs to the Lord. But as King David continues, we also find God very specifically in somewhere very specific. And that is on the hill of the Lord. That's our second point. Where is God on the hill of the Lord? Now, what does that mean? Verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Now, this comes a bit of a surprise, if you think about it, after verse 1 and 2, considering what we've just said. We've just been told that the whole earth belongs to the Lord. So why is he focusing on one area? It's as if he sort of opened up Google in front of him, Google Earth, and he's sort of stuck in a postcode and he zooms us in and he takes us to anticlimactically uh, somewhat to, to, to a hill. Except this is no ordinary hill, this is Mount Zion, the hill on which Jerusalem, God's city, was built, and in time where the temple of the Lord would be constructed. That's where God is going to reside. We see that God is everywhere, but it is clear in the Old Testament that he has chosen to dwell symbolically and very specifically with his people in a very special physical way in this one place on this hill, on Zion, in the temple. And notice the one thing highlighted about this place, spot it in verse 3, it is a holy place. God is a holy God. That means he is set apart very specifically in sort of blazing moral purity. 
And the question being asked is, well, who can ascend this holy hill of the Lord? And notice that even asking the question presupposes it presupposes that there's a problem in our trying to. We, we can't sort of merely amble up the hill as we can in some of the Monroes in Scotland, sort of whenever the mood takes us. Some people I speak to often think that God is hiding. And not in a sort of mysterious sense, we've got to find him, we've got to work him out, but hiding from accountability. As one person once said to me, honestly, if I ever find God, my goodness, will I give him a piece of my mind. Well, what a shock it would be to that person to, to know that they wouldn't be able to get anywhere near him. Even if they wanted to, because God is supremely and blazingly holy, we, we can't get anywhere near him. So the question remains, who is it who has got what it takes to ascend the hill and stand in God's blazing, moral, pure, holy presence? Well, David tells us the answer. It comes in verse 4. Have a look at that. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Notice there's no mention of family inheritance or religious observance. What matters, it seems, is a particular way of life, and in four very particular areas. First, clean hands. The, the person who can ascend this hill to where God is has to have clean hands. That is, pointing us to the outward actions of a human, particularly in our relationships with others. This clean-handed person, in other words, is to be innocent of all wrongdoing to other people all the time. And that goes hand in hand with, secondly, a pure heart. And as clean hands are the outward actions, so the pure heart here, David is, if you like, focusing on the thoughts, on, on, on the inner motives of our hearts. They ought to be pure, says David, the one who wants to ascend this, this holy mountain to God. We can't tell what's going on inside our hearts with each other, but God who made us can. Jesus echoes David's words a thousand years later when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall ascend the hill and see God. The pure-hearted person can climb this hill. He will see God. They will find God in his holy place. You've got clean hands and a pure heart. And next you need, says David, a truth-loving soul. This is the person who does not lift his soul to what is false. What does that mean? Well, well, the word false here means worthless or empty, and they are words associated with idols, aren't they? That is what the Bible calls all idols, worthless and empty, false, the, the idea that they promise much and deliver nothing. And the soul means all of a person's life. Every single fibre of your being is meant to be totally truthful. So the concern of David here is those who lift up their lives, all of their lives, to, to something worthless, to an idol. You, you can't enter God's presence. From any idol, like a block of wood or the metal statue kind, right through to wrong relationship, the pursuit of wealth and status. These are all something that has been created in the world, but the psalm has already told us they all belong to the Lord God, who made those things and over which he is master. So to treat them as God... To give them our deepest commitment, it is false. It is idolatry. And it leaves us totally empty. Because only one thing, only one person is worthy of lifting up our lives to and idolizing, and that is God himself. As Jesus himself put it, quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength. 
to do that is actually to live the real authentic life, to live in the real world that the Lord has made. To live for an idol, to, 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 to live for a lifestyle that is so common around us, to li- is to live in a fantasy world, if you like, by contrast. It's to live the empty life, for it is a world that we have simply created for ourselves. So the one who can ascend the hill of the Lord has clean hands, a pure heart, a truth-loving soul, and finally, truth-speaking lips. That is the one who does not swear deceitfully. In other words, this person, what they say, they really mean. And what they mean to say, they say. That when we say something, we'll do something, we should do it. The, the idea that our word should be our bond, but not held for our pride, but because we honour the God who made us and who keeps his promises for us. Never to have lied. Those are the four marks, then, of the one who can ascend the hill of the Lord. And the deep and unbreakable truth is that without this holiness, without this holiness that matches God's holiness, no one will see the Lord. But if verse 4 is an accurate description of someone who is allowed to ascend the hill of God himself, so is verse 5 and 6, which follows, which is of deep encouragement to us sitting here today. He, this person, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Living distinctively, as we will be looking at very much in the letter of 1 Peter over the course of this term, is truly difficult. And the psalmist knows this. The whole point is that we will stand out from the world around us, whether back at the office and as we begin to sort of edge slowly back into our places of work or at university, in our halls, in our lecture theatres or at home or at school. It's going to be really uncomfortable, says the Bible. It's difficult. It's really hard. But, says the psalmist, it's worth it. We will receive blessing from the Lord. And if any of us here have ever attempted to live a holy life and have found it truly difficult and wonder how on earth we can do this, whether this is what God really wants us to be like, we find ourselves failing every day, this this gives us the push and the encouragement. It is the way into God's presence. You will see the Lord. That's the promise. That's the glorious attraction. Living this way, as uncomfortable as it is now, will reap astonishing reward and blessing in eternity from the Lord himself, the same Lord to whom belongs every millimeter of the earth. But notice the end of verse 6 too. The challenge to those who claim to be looking for God. What does David say? He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. That means those genuinely seeking after God will grow, however gradually, into living holy lives. So if we're supposedly searching for God and that doesn't impact in the way I live or want to live in any way at all, then I want to be asking myself, well, am I actually searching for the true God at all, whatever I'm claiming? Or have I become content with finding and settling for a God who will fit in with the way that I choose to live? That will appease me. That will just give me what I want. It's not seeking after the Lord God who transforms. But before we go any further into what the psalmist is saying to us next, you'll notice at the end of verse 6 we come to the word that wonderfully was actually read for us as Christine read. Lots of people don't read these words and they should always be read when reading the psalms. And the word is seller. This is probably a musical term. 
indicating an interlude from the hearers to have time to take stock of what's been sung so far in the service. So let's take stock. So far, we've seen that the holy life, the Christian life, is the distinctive life. And verse 4 is a snapshot of what that life looks like, a life of clean hands, a pure heart, a truth-loving soul, and truth-speaking lips. And, and this life becomes the ID, if you like, the ID card that you need to show and to wave into God's face when you get to the top of the hill, which will allow you into God's special presence. So let's ponder that for a moment. That's what David is saying here. And the question we are meant to ask at this point is, do I have that? Do I have that life? Do I have that holiness? Do I have that ID which lets me into God's presence? Well, David didn't. He composed these very words, and he would, never, he would have been so aware that he came nowhere to living up to this standard. Not even close. In fact, in time, not only would the great King David not have clean hands, but he would have blood on his hands. As he sends a man called Uriah to his death because he wants his wife, Bathsheba, for himself. In another psalm, Psalm 51, David pleads with the Lord to cleanse him from this very particular sin. We may not have blood on our hands, but if we're really honest with ourselves, how do we stack up against this description of the holy life? What does our desire to get on in life lead us to do to others? What really goes on in our hearts and minds behind closed doors? Do we live every single moment of every single day for God? Or do our idols and other creative things get much more than a second glance? Are our words always as they seem? No. Not even close. You see, we too, like the great King David, cannot get anywhere near this hill, let alone start to climb it. It's too steep. And if you were to get to the top, the gates of God's presence are slammed shut hard. They're, they're sort of double bolted, unable to be open to us. There's deafening silence. So the final question is, of course, if not us, if not even King David himself, then who? Who has what it takes and can ascend into God's presence? Well, verse 7, lift up your heads and see who. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? He is the Lord God, strong and mighty, the Lord God, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Again, who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. You see, the first time we read Psalm 24, we might have thought, well, verses 33 to 6 tell us the kind of people who can ascend the hill, and the next bit tells us who these people are and how they get there. Well, not really. In fact, not at all. If you haven't guessed it by now in this series in the Psalms, there is only one person who this psalm is concerned with and focused on. And who is he? We are told no less than five times in these last four verses exactly who he is. He is the king of glory, the Lord, Yahweh God. David himself was the king of God's people, but it's pretty obvious that David wasn't talking about himself. He's pointing to another, one who is strong and mighty, the one who alone can be called the king of glory. Glory meaning majesty and honor and unrivaled splendor, the qualities very much associated with God himself. 
So it's no surprise in verse 8 when twice we are told that the king of glory is the Lord, the capital L-O-R-D again, the creator God who owns everything on the planet back in verse 1. That's him. David is, of course, not just looking back to verse 1, however. He's also looking forward, speaking ahead of time, the one who uh, we are sort of sitting here back looking back on, if you like, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord God who came to the earth he created as the divine human king of glory. And the king of glory has made it, says King David. He's made it up the hill. He's standing in the holy place. The the psalmist is calling out to the gates themselves. Can you see? The gates that cannot be opened to everyone. He's sort of waking them up from slumber. They've been asleep for so long. They've never been used. And the psalmist says, well, wake up. Lift up your heads, you gates. Come on. There's someone who's coming who can come through. You need to open for him. He's the king. That the doors to God's eternal presence, they need to be open. Someone has to enter. And only one person can. Look, the king of glory has arrived. The creator of the earth, owner of everything in it, and everyone in it is coming, and he has clean hands, a pure heart. He didn't lift up his soul to what is false. He has never sworn deceitfully. He can go in. Come on, guys, wake up. And that is absolutely the description of our Lord Jesus, isn't it? The perfect one whose hands were only ever clean, that only ever loved, that only ever helped and healed and restored. The perfect one whose heart was only ever pure, which only ever pursued in love and faithfully obeyed and compassionately served and willingly sacrificed. The perfect one whose soul was only ever concerned with what was true, which was only ever concerned for the lost and the broken and the marginalized and the ill-treated, with no room for pride or popularity or pomp and position. The perfect one whose lips only ever spoke truth, God's honest truth. The words of the Father, without spite, cruelty, or jealousy, but dripping in love and grace and truth, the truth that leads sinners to salvation for an eternity. Jesus, as we see in the Gospels, is the one and only example in human history of the perfect life, the perfect lived life. There is no one like this king, and he alone can ascend this hill. But in a sense, as we draw to a close this morning, that's still not enough for us. For a king has subjects, he has people, and if this king of glory is the only one who is worthy to ascend God's hill, then what of us? What of his people, his people who who fail, even if we are attempting rightly under this king to hone our holiness and to work on our clean hands and our hearts and our lips and our souls? How do we ascend this hill? Well, look very carefully At verse 8. What has he done for us, this king? Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And that brings us to our last point very quickly. The earth is the Lord's, the hill is the Lord's, only he can ascend it. And finally, the battle is the Lord's. So this king is victorious in battle. That raises our next question, which is, well, who or what has he been doing battle with? For didn't we just say at the top of the psalm that the whole earth belongs to him, everything. The earth is the Lord's, all of it. So what can be against him if everything belongs to him? Who can stand up to that? What kind of enemy does that look like? Well, the problem we find, as we've seen in this psalm, is verses 4 to 5. To enter God's presence, we must be holy, but nobody is. And nobody is holy because all of us fall short of God's perfect standard. We've all rejected the king. 
in the Garden of Eden primarily, but every single day since, choosing to live for ourselves and our idols, rejecting God and Lord all over the earth. And so Satan, God's enemy, is allowed to run amok, if you like, amongst us, showing us what living without God really does look like. And so he seems to have the power over us. He seems to win. If I can't enter God's presence, then sin and Satan win. He has the human race exactly where he wants us. Does Satan not win? Well, he seems to. And and he seems to win by pointing to my heart and saying to the king of glory, you need to look at Sam's heart. His hands are not clean. His heart is filthy. His soul is attracted to emptiness and his lips have spoken evil and untruth. He cannot ascend your hill, God. And God in his justice and holiness cannot deny that. Well, you're right, says the holy creator, God. But that's not the final word on my children, says God. For my king of glory, I have sent him into battle, and he has won. And how has this king of glory won this battle? What kind of battle has been fighting? Well, well, remember we said right at the beginning of our series in the Psalms, that all the psalms relate to each other, and all the book, psalms in book one are related to each other. They're not just randomly placed. <clears throat> Let me show you why that's important for us this morning. Flip back to the first verse of Psalm 22. And what do we read there? We read uh, the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the battle that the king of glory fought. A battle of forsakenness. The King Jesus is going to be forsaken. How do we know that from the Psalms? That forsakenness was the battle that this king had to face? Well, look at the last verse in Psalm 22. And what do we read? They, that is future generations, shall shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Jesus has done it. The King of glory has done it done it. He has endured forsakenness, a forsakenness that was demonstrated by death and by death on a cross. But why? Why did the King of glory, Jesus, have to fight the battle of forsakenness and death? Well, the truth is, because of the way that we have treated God and others, we do not deserve to enter God's presence. We deserve punishment to be separated from God. We do not deserve to find God at all. We deserve to be forsaken by God, which is why the King of glory willingly endured that forsakenness in our place. Jesus, God the Son, forsaken by his Father, suffering exclusion from the presence of the Lord, cut off from the hill of the Lord and from his own Father's presence as he died. That is the battle that he had to fight in order that we weren't forsaken. A battle far greater than we or anyone else have ever had to face. And Psalm 22, 23, 24 shows us that he has done it. <clears throat> the king overcame death and he has made it through the gates as the victor on our, on our behalf. And so as our king, he takes us in with him. Three days later, after enduring death, the king rose again from the dead and now clothes us, his subjects, in his clean-handedness, in his pure-heartedness, in his truth-loving soul, in his truth-loving lips. The battle, the victory, it all belongs to the Lord, the king of glory, and he has done it. And so this psalm is the victory march, if you like, up the hill of the Lord. 
he bursts through those gates and those who choose to follow this King Jesus, those who recognize him truly as Lord over them in the earth, come to him in faith, are called his subjects while they get to march right on in behind him. Clean, pure, true and holy. As he makes us all those things. As he makes us wretches saved by an incredible grace and for a victorious future, if only we would ask it of him. If only we would recognize him as king over the earth and everything in it and bow before his glory. Hebrews 9.24 encapsulate these psalms beautifully when the writer says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So where is God? Well, he is to be found in all the earth. His fingerprints are all over his creation. He is to be found in God's presence on God's holy hill. But most supremely for our sake, he is found in Jesus Christ. In the historical Jesus Christ who did it. God's son, God himself, the son of God, the king of God, who did all these things and who won. And who died and rose again and suffered isolation from God's presence on our behalf. Which brings us back to verse 5 of our psalm, which makes this Jesus the God of our salvation. He is not the God of our striving. He is not the God of our hard work. He is not the God of self-reliance. He is not even the God of self-righteousness and religion. He is the God of our salvation. The subject of the King of King Jesus will receive, notice, blessing and righteousness from the God of our salvation. As we draw our summer to a close, lift up your heads, Redeemer, and be confident in your King, who saved you and is standing in the presence of God, pleading on your behalf, making you holy every day as he is holy, fit and ready for your future with him. And lift up your heads, all of you who don't know this Jesus, and who are truly seeking God and are maybe close to finding him this morning, and see the King of glory, in the Lord Jesus Christ. See him lead the way into God's everlasting presence, asking you to follow him, for he is the one who has done it on your behalf, the one forsaken for you, the king of the earth, and the God of your salvation. Let me pray as we close. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us in the gospel. Thank you for your goodness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what we read here and are reminded of. Thank you that Jesus is our King, the King of glory. Thank you that he made a way for us to enter into God's presence, into his eternity. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to earth to do all those things, to suffer forsakenness for our sake, death for our sake in our place, and being risen to life so that we may rise to life with him following him in his victory train as he enters eternity, as we enter him. Father God, may that give us confidence this morning. Those of us who are, who, who are worried about our salvation, may this give us real confidence this morning that he has us. Or for those of us who are seeking the Lord God, may it be that we are struck by the Lord Jesus Christ, that we find God in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is everything for us and everything that we need. Father God, be with us throughout the course of this day as we meet together now for, for, for food and as we chat to each other, as we love each other in the Lord, as we fellowship and encourage each other face to face. May we remember that we all belong to the Lord Jesus 
and, and Father God, that we are ready for an eternity with you being made in your likeness. We praise you and thank you for all of these wonderful truths this morning in your mighty name. Amen.